We are in Exodus. It's good to be with you guys again because I wasn't preaching last week. Uh, Pastor Matt was preaching from Park Place, and I'm not sure if we'll do the thing where we have him back um, because apparently his like method is about 50% sermon and 50% just mocking Pastor Ed. And uh, that seemed to work well for him, though. People seem to respond really well to it. Um, so we'll see if he comes back again. I'm not sure. Um, but we are in Exodus 19, and uh, so if you want to turn there with the Bible, you can. I'm going to put all the scripture up on the screen as we work through it this morning, so if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. Um, we're going to look at the first time now that the people come together. Um, I want to read one little passage uh, first to get us started, and that's starting in verse 7 of chapter 19, and then we will, uh, we will continue on from there. So this is where we left off last week. Exodus 19, verse 7. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. Okay, hold on. I'll start right there for a second and give you some context. Uh, so basically, he had just said to the people, the Israelites, here's who you are now. You are priests. You are going to be my people, a nation of priests, which means I'm calling you, I'm appointing you to be the ones that bring me to the rest of the world. That's what you're here to do, okay? So he's just presented them with basically the, the purpose of their life, their existence as a group of people is to be his priests. And so it says that all the people came back before after he commanded them these words. And it says, all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. So he's now saying, I'm going to come to you in a cloud. And what's about to happen is the people are going to now, after saying, we will be this people, this priest, this, this nation of priests, what God's response to them is going to be is now I will be present to you in a cloud and I want you guys to all come and gather together. Okay, he's going to gather together. And this is the first time that we're going to see all of God's people collectively gathered together seeking him, just like what we do every week when we come to church. It's the gathering of God's people. It's the church coming together to interact with God. Now, I don't, a question that I want to ask you guys to think about is simply this. How did you prepare to come here this morning? How did you prepare to be at church. Now, some people hate that question because the moment you ask that question, they start to feel guilty. Prepare? What? I didn't prepare anything. I didn't prepare at all. I just got up and I came here like I come anywhere else. I have the, uh, I'll say reality and I won't say benefit. I have the reality of, as a pastor, not knowing what it's like to get a family ready to come to church, okay? I just don't know what that's like because I get up and I leave super early. I make sure I leave before anyone's awake even my dog, now that he's getting older, just stays there. He, like, sees me walk out the door. He's like, I'm not even going to go greet you. I think I get, like, a tail wag, and that's it. And then I come here really early, and then I'm here for a while, and so I don't get to really experience the fun of getting my kids ready for church and getting everybody out the door and getting here on time in order to be here at church. 
But I do see Ellie come in with the kids about half the time, come into the lobby through the front doors, and, uh, and I can usually tell the moment I see her and the kids exactly how the morning's been going, you know, depending uh, based on how they look, uh, how they're talking to each other, how fast or slow they're going, and then it's later that I end up finding out like whatever it was that actually happened to get everybody there. If you have kids, you know what this is like. Last week I did get to get my kids ready for church because Pastor Matt was preaching and Ellie was leading worship, and so I said, oh, that's fine, I'll bring the kids to church. And I got to see all the fun of that. And I will not walk you guys through what that was like because you don't want to hear it, although it's ridiculous. But if you have kids, maybe, you're like, here's all the stuff I had to do to get ready to go to church. Just prepare for church. And maybe you, you get here and you go, uh, I haven't even thought about this. I haven't even thought about this church thing. I'm just getting here. Here I am, you know? And you feel bad. You feel like I'm not preparing myself for this. I'm not really taking it as seriously as I should. Maybe you get here and you go, oh, now I can just kind of be with these people and rest and seek God and and do those things. Maybe you find it that way. Uh, There's a lot of people who prepare a lot of different ways to come to church. At my last church, there was a lady, uh, an older lady. Her name was Gay. And she had a room in her house. And in that room, well, that was her hat room. It was a room dedicated to her hats. And every Sunday morning, she would send her husband into the room. And he would get a box out. They were all in boxes. Every hat was in a box. And he would pick a hat for her to wear. And he would bring it out. And he would say, Gay, here's your hat for this morning. And she would put it on. And she would come to church with a different hat every morning. She had hundreds of hats in boxes in the hat room in their house. That was, one, that was how she prepared to come to church. And that was a big deal for her about going to church. I pointed him out in the first service. I don't think he's in here right now. But Jim Gunder, one of our ushers, he gets here between 7 and 7.15 every Sunday morning. And he gets here. He kind of walks the halls, kind of walks around, makes sure everything's looking okay. He gets the bulletins. I always get the first bulletin. He always gives me the first bulletin. I get the first handshake. I kind of break it in for you guys, you know. I get the first handshake. And then he's here, prepared, ready, waiting for church, right? So there's a lot of different ways that we prepare to gather together. But I think when many of us are honest, we don't often put a lot of thought into this idea of gathering together. We're used to it. We, if you've done it for a long time, if you grew up doing it, then you're like, it's just this thing that I do. And if nothing else, I hope that as we look at what happens the first time that we, these people gather together, we can gain sort of a deeper sense of appreciation for what exactly it is that we're doing here, why it matters so much. Here's what happens after God says he's going to appear to them in this cloud. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether the beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. And they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. So here's what we see about a holy people first and foremost. He's going to call them to gather together. And the first thing that he calls them to do is to be consecrated. Okay? Holy people, when it comes to them gathering together, are people who are consecrated. Now, this is very important. 
They had to take physical steps and actions in order to actually begin to do something different. Because up till this point, it had been all words, right? God had said, you're going to be my people in this way. And they said, yes, we agree with you. They said, we will be your people. We will do this. We agree with all the things that you have said. So now God says, okay, I want you to now do something. I want you to now do something that will consecrate you, which means set you apart. It's like another way of saying holy. To be consecrated is to be set apart. And it's to be set apart for God's purposes. He says, I want you to do some specific things. And as you do these things, these actions will begin to show that you mean what you say with your words, right? So it's easy to say things. It's easy to intend really good things. Uh, But to be consecrated is the beginning of saying, I'm going to actually live differently. I'm going to do something differently. To be consecrated is like you're reading a newspaper. This may be hard to imagine. You're reading a newspaper, and you see like an article in the newspaper, a story that you you want to save for some reason, so you cut it out. What you've just done is you've consecrated that thing. You've said, I'm going to take this, and it's now going to be used for my purposes, whether that's to give it to someone else, hang it up on the wall, make a scrapbook, make like a ransom note out of it, I don't know. Whatever you want to do with it, I've consecrated this thing. It's for my purposes. And it's what I want to use it for. So God's saying, I'm going to set you guys apart, and I'm going to use you for something. And the first step of that is them behaving differently. Now, it might seem kind of random, right? Why would he pick these two things? It says he makes them wash their clothes, and he says that you can't have any sexual contact with each other for three full days. And the reason for this is because, first of all, he wants for these people to actually care about the way that they bring themselves to him, to actually clean themselves up and say, we want you to see us at our best. But what he also wants is for them to make distinctive decisions to deny themselves of things, that they're natural desires, right? These are people that are married, they're in families. He's saying to not like sleep with the person that you're married to. You're allowed to, you're, you're supposed to. That's a good thing, that's an okay thing. But he's saying to not do it for three days, which will be difficult for people. He's saying, I want you to hold off on something, and it will be difficult for you, but I want you to abstain from it. Why? Because a holy people, a consecrated people, are a people who don't just follow their every urge and impulse. And sometimes I'm going to test that with you guys, and I'm going to show you what it looks like to hold off on things. Now, for some, you're hearing that and you're going, that would be really difficult, that second one. For others, you're hearing it and you're going, that first one would be pretty difficult, okay? If you've ever been a, if you've, not a lot of you have, but if you've ever been a youth pastor, Josh is uh, taking some students to junior high camp this next week. If you've ever been to junior high camp, you know that this first one is probably a bigger deal for junior hires because the idea of washing their clothes and getting cleaned up is actually totally foreign to many of them. I don't know a single youth pastor who hasn't been in a situation at one point where they had to throw a kid with their clothes on in a shower at camp and just turn the water on. Like, I I had a cabin of kids vote to do this. This one kid just, he smelled so bad on day five, and he wasn't trying at all to take care of the problem. The worst part is they bring a whole bag full of clothes sometimes, and they never even use them, or they'll come without any clothes. They're like, no, I didn't pack, I just brought this. And like, it's a snow camp, and day one, they're soaking wet or something, right? And so they just, this kid comes in, and, he, and he's going to climb into his, his sleeping bag, and they all just, he's fully clothed, he hasn't changed, they just grab him, they all throw him in the shower, they turn the water on, they're like, you're not getting out of there until you smell better than the way you smell. So for some people, that's actually the harder one to do. But what he's saying to them is he's saying, I care about how you present yourselves to me. Now here's the catch, or here's the thing. This does not mean 
that everyone has to dress in the fanciest, finest, nicest clothes that they can find in order to be gathered together to go to God. How do we know that? We know that because elsewhere in the Bible, it actually talks about not becoming so overly dressed or putting so much thought and care into how you look in your physical appearance when you gather together that it's a distraction. Uh, scripture says things in the epistles like, like, like that women aren't to be adorned with fancy jewelry and, and the way they do their hair. That isn't meant to say women can't dress a certain way or look a certain way or, or to force women to be more submissive in some way. That is literally there to say to women, let you be like known and identified for your faith rather than your physical appearance alone because you put so much effort into that. And that if we all came to church and said, okay, fine, I'm going to look as nice as I possibly can in the most expensive, best clothes that I have every time, we would still be missing the point of what he's saying here. Because he's saying that to be consecrated means to actually bring to me your best. One of the things that I have been obsessed with over the last, I would say the last week, week and a half, and I don't know why, but I just have been, is the movie Sister Act 2. I don't know why. It just started a week and a half ago. I thought about this one particular scene at the end of the movie where they sing Joyful, Joyful, and then I watched it on YouTube, and it just, it, it's, it's all I've been thinking about. So, of course, it's going to work its way into the sermon. Now, Sister Act, if you're not familiar with it, is a great example of just the, 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 the weirdness of movies that came out in the early 90s. Like, the premise of Sister Act, if you're not familiar with it, is this. Whoopi Goldberg, a lounge singer, witnesses a murder. The mafia is involved. And so they throw her into some kind of witness relocation program that's kind of unofficial off the books in a convent or in a, with a bunch of nuns. Hilarity ensues, right? She dresses like a nun. She has to relearn the way that she's going to be as a person as she plays this part. And she ends up leading the choir that's really been struggling. And oh boy, do they get good. And then there's some action scene in the end, I'm sure, when somebody shows up to try to kill her. Well, they made a sequel, Sister Act 2. Back in the habit. Does anyone get that joke? Okay. Yeah, okay, so yeah, I guess that's, yeah. It's called a habit, what they wear. Um, back in the habit. And in this one, she's got a school full of students, and, you know, they need, they need some help getting their lives kind of turned around a little bit, you know. Uh, and so she teaches them to become this great choir and discover their musical abilities. And at the end of the movie, right before the big choir performance, and, and, and she, she, she comes in and says to them, I want you guys to take off the robes and go out there in your regular, fun, bright, 90s kid clothing with your big overalls or whatever it is that you're wearing. Because if we're going to go out, we're going to go out in style and, and we're going to be comfortable. I think she says, at least you'll get to be because she still has to be dressed like a nun and stuff. And so they come out and they do all these backflips and everything. And they start rapping and they sing joyful, joyful in the most joyful way possible. I bring this up not just because I wanted to talk about Sister Act 2, although it felt really good to talk about Sister Act 2 just for some reason, because I've been thinking about it all week. I bring it up because this whole idea of, of, of saying we'll look a certain way, we'll be a certain way, we'll dress a certain way, and it'll communicate our devoutness and how consecrated we are can actually work against the meaning of people gathering together when it just becomes about doing that thing alone, right? And what they realize in this thing is we have to throw these things off and cast them off if we're going to really proclaim the joyful, joyful good news of the Lord, and that's exactly what they did. And a lot of people know exactly what that's like. It's important to do things that follow up our words, even if those things are symbolic, we intend very good things. We say at the beginning of a marriage, incredible wedding vows, 
that describe our intentions of being the best spouse that we could possibly be. But do we end up being the best spouse that we could possibly be? Not all of us. When, when we begin as a parent, we often intend, we intend to be the best parent that we could possibly be, and we would say that. We sometimes commit to it. And yet, do we follow through on that? Can we follow through on that? If you've been in a job interview, you know what this feels like, because you've probably thought, I would be the best person for this job. I will do the best job out of anybody who's applying for this job. I know I will. Have you always done the best job of all the people that may be applied for that job? You see, our words mean one thing, but unless they begin to be followed up by some kind of action that puts meaning to it, then they are just words. And so God calls his people to be consecrated so they can be set apart. And what then happens is he gathers these people to himself. We read this. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke. God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. We'll stop right there. So what we see here is that these people, these holy people are going to come together. They're going to be gathered together collectively. Yes, I can exist with you individually, but I want to, to be here communing with you as a group together. And that's important to me, says God. But apart from just coming together, the people are seeking God. They're not just coming together to seek to come together, right? And you go, well, yeah, of course, right? Seeking God. I mean, who wouldn't, right? Who would just get together regularly, dressing nice, and abstain from things? What kind of church would do something like that, right? Who's ever heard of such a thing? Lots of churches do that. Lots of people do that. They come together. They dress up well. Or at least they care about how they look. And then they abstain from things. And they say, we're the church. But if we're not seeking God as we come together, like really genuinely seeking God together, both collectively and individually coming, wanting to seek God, then we're not doing what the Israelites did here. And they get God. They seek him and they get God. He appears to them on the mountain. They cannot go beyond a certain point. He basically calls them most of the way up the mountain, and then he says, you can't go any further. And if you go any further, whoever touches that part of the mountain will be killed. He doesn't even say you'll die immediately. He says other people will have to kill that person. And what we read about here is that it is absolutely terrifying. I mean, this is terrifying stuff. They are so filled with fear, including Moses, that they probably don't even have a good way to process that in any way. Like, there is no way that we could convey what this is like. You cannot, with all the ability and technology we have today, make a movie that shows what this is like. Even if you, you could not sit in an IMAX theater and experience a movie that shows what this is like, you couldn't experience something like this in nature right now. You could experience maybe one form of it. You could experience something like a volcano that would show part of the scale of what this is, but it wouldn't have the voice of God speaking from the cloud itself filling you with terror and fear, knowing that if you get too close or you aren't careful, that it would mean the end of you. It was absolutely terrifying. 
to seek God. To come together and to seek him. And as they seek him, what we see is two things about him. One is that this is a God who says, I'm going to make myself near to you. I'm going to come to you. He comes to the mountain, and he makes himself very near to them. It's his imminence. It's the fact that God, God wants to be, he desires to be where we are. But what we also see is we see that he doesn't get too near. He says, I'm not going to be directly with you. I'm not going to be in direct contact with you. But he is instead a God who is also transcendent. He's apart from us. And the imminence of God coupled with the transcendence of God is one of the incredible things about the way that God operates, the way that he works. The closer they come, the more clearly they saw the vast distance that still separated them from God. At the same time that God is revealing himself here, he's also concealing himself. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 97, clouds are thick and darkness surround him. When Isaiah entered the throne room of heaven, he saw God surrounded by smoke. We read about that in Isaiah 6. At the transfiguration, the disciples saw Jesus enveloped in a bright cloud. The clouds that surround God's presence give us a sense of his glory, but they also hide it. In that we see God, and yet we don't see God. He chooses to do this, to veil himself in this way. As Isaiah said, truly you are a God who hides himself, O God and Savior of Israel. And so when God came down to Mount Sinai, he's both revealed, but he's also concealed by this glorious cloud of his presence. He says, I am with you, but I'm not with you. I'm here in your presence, but I'm not fully in your presence. My son's always asking me questions about things all the time. And he started asking me a lot of questions about the Bible. And one of the things that he asked me is, why can't we see God? But this isn't a question that he's asking because it's a basic question that we all just move on from once we get into first grade. He's asking me this question because it's an essential question. It's one that we go back to again and again and again. The question, why don't we see God? Why does he not make himself perfect, perfectly visible and known to us physically? I mean, how much easier would that be? How different would that be, right? And even if we think we're happy with the answer to that at one point, we'll go back to it years later and say, yeah, but, but why, again, can't we just see God? Why can't he just show himself to us fully? We can experience the, the, the effects of God, we can experience God in some very physical and, and tangible ways. But we don't get to fully see him yet. And one of the reasons for that is because of the fact that he veils himself, Scripture tells us. It says he's veiling himself. He's covering himself. He's shrouding himself. And even in these moments where he is as with them as he can be with a group of people, they still don't get to see him. They see his glory but they don't get to see him all the way. And if they did, it would kill them. Even Jesus walked among us physically as God, but he had to do so in a way that was veiled. So when people saw Jesus, they didn't immediately go, oh my, there's a God. There's a God walking around everybody. Look, everybody, it's a God. No, they didn't say that. 
He looked like a person, like a man, because his glory had to be veiled for him to live in the flesh and dwell amongst us. It just had to be. So these people gather together, and these people seek God, and the God that they seek is the God who says, I want a relationship with you, and I want to dwell amongst you and amidst you, but I will not be right there next to you. There will be distance between you and me because of who you are and because of who I am. And so he goes on to say this, and the Lord says to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and so many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. You see, there's a question How then, if we want to uh, be with this God, if we want to interact with a God who is so terrifying and so holy that we can't even be immediately connected to him, how then are we supposed to have a relationship with him? How then are we even supposed to gather and come with him? And the answer is, he will use a mediator. Holy people also need a mediator. They need someone who can go in between them and God. This has got to be the most exhausting job in the world. Moses is in his 80s, and every time he talks to God, God says the same thing. Okay, now I want you to go back to the people. (sighs) Okay. It's a mountain. It's far. He has to go all the way up the mountain. Hey, God, okay, so anyway, here, and there's the people, and you're, okay, what do you want me to do now? I want you to go back to the people. Okay, all right, of course you do. Of course you do, right? And then I want you to come back up, and I want you to talk to me. Of course, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you want me to do that, right? Seven separate times he tells Moses to go and to come. Moses' job as a mediator is to be the person that goes in between God and the people so that he can have a relationship with them even though he's as holy as he is. But the other thing that a mediator, you have to have one for, is apart from serving as the go-between, they're the ones that consecrate the people. Because God tells the mediator, here's how the people can be holy and they can dwell with me. And so the mediator isn't just the one that goes back and forth. They're the one that comes to the people and say, here's how you are made clean enough to even gather in God's presence to begin with. You need a mediator. We need a mediator. We need someone who can interact with God on a level that we just can't because of the sin that we have, because of who we are, because we live in the flesh. It says this in Hebrews 12. This is going to sound familiar because it's talking about this part of Exodus. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enthroned in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, 
and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We have a new mediator, and it's Jesus. That we are being called to experience the very same God who hasn't changed. And yet we are given a better mediator even than Moses. We're given Jesus himself. And so because of that, holy people need Jesus. We were at our general conference last week, and we, all of our group of churches were together talking, the pastors and the leaders, they were talking to us. And one of the things that they said was, one of, what, one of the things that formed this denomination, this group of churches, this conference of churches, was the desire to say, Jesus is the way and nothing else is. That it was at a time in the life of the church when there were a lot of other things that were kind of being offered as sort of ways to be saved and to be better and to be holy and to be with God, to be one of God's people. And yet these churches said, but if we're not saying to people, Jesus is the one that you need all the time in every situation with everything, that Jesus is the one who saves, that if we're not saying that to people, then we're not giving them life. We're not offering them truth. And so that is what we do. We say to people, it isn't just about being consecrated. It isn't just about abstaining from things. It isn't just about dressing up. And it isn't just about coming to church together. And it isn't even just about saying, I'm on a journey to seek God that might last me my whole life as I seek that in every form. It is, we seek Jesus because he's the only one who can actually mediate. He's the only one that can actually give us life. Without him, we don't have it. So we read through this, and you read through this account, and one of the things that is so clear, I know at least as I have read through this again and again, is, and I, and I don't want this to sound bad, but it may, I don't know. There, now we're done. Now you know. I told the first service I put one of those slides right in the middle, and it was a joke that I didn't. One of the things that comes to my mind as I read this again and again is how is this supposed to be so much better for these people than being in Egypt? They were slaves under a ruler, someone dictating everything they were supposed to do, the way that they were supposed to live. They were slaves in Egypt. And honestly, what this looks like is slavery in the desert. It looks like they've been called out to a new geographical location, but they're being commanded to do things that are very specific. And what is the penalty for not doing these things correctly? Death. What does that sound like? In fact, there was almost this period of time in between where they kind of had real freedom, it seems. They weren't in Egypt, and they didn't yet have God telling them what they had to do and how they had to live and act, and so they kind of got to be free in the way that we think of it, maybe. And this is the point where a lot of us, as we begin to talk about what it looks like to be a holy people, say, that's not something I'm interested in. As great as a holy God sounds... There's one thing that I want. It's what I relate to the, Israel, to the Israelites with, and it is this. I want freedom. I want freedom. I want independence. I want to be able to be free. I don't want any dictators. I don't want any slave masters. I don't want to serve. I want to be free. And the reality that, of, of the picture that Scripture paints to us is this. And if we understand this, then we understand what's happening here. And if we don't understand this, then it will never sit well with us the way that God's calling the Israelites to be. We are all slaves to something all the time. There is no freedom. 
It is an illusion. We are slaves to God or we are slaves to something else. But we are always slaves to something. We were created to glorify and serve God. If we are not doing that thing, we will glorify and serve something else. And we may tell ourselves that we're free and we may think we want freedom more than anything else. But when you see it that way, when you see that there are only two alternatives, to be gathering together and worshiping this holy God on the mountain, to say, I will be your servant or being enslaved to something else. And many of us and most people are living in slavery and bondage to something else. And a lot are under the illusion that they're truly free. When you serve God, then you are occupied with thoughts and concerns about God. Your life is about God. You worry about things that have to do with God. You think about things that have to do with God. You are concerned primarily with the glory of God and his kingdom and not other things. More than that. Not other people, not yourself, not the enemy, not the world. You go, what does God think of this? How does this reflect on the God that I serve? How am I bringing glory to God because this is what I'm here for? These are the things that would bother us if we think we're not doing them appropriately to truly be a servant of God. To say, here's how he's called us to be consecrated. Here's how he's called us to live for him and to represent him. And I'm worried about doing that. I want to do it. I want to do it because I believe that life is found in that, and I believe that he's the one I ought to serve. But many of us think that we're serving God, or we think that we're free, but we're not. We're slaves to something else. But we're never our own, not like we think we are. Many of us think we're serving God, but we're serving ourselves. We're living for ourselves, and we are thinking that that's freedom, but it's not. It's slavery to the things that we want and the things that we feel like we need. When you're, enslaved, when you're a slave to something, that thing tells you this. It says, without me, you will die. And so there's something saying that to each of us, that we really believe that. Without this thing, I will perish. The question is, is that thing God? Or is that thing one of a variety of others? Most of us think we're serving God, but we're serving ourselves. Here's the tell for something like this. Here's how you know that this might be the case. Does your pursuit of God ever lead you to do things that require sacrifice? That's actually a choice and not just the circumstances around you forcing you to do something a certain way. And when I say sacrifice, I don't mean discipline. I don't mean do something difficult now because it'll produce something better later. I'm talking about actually Choosing to live in a way sometimes, or live in a way when confronted with situations, that you will, you will make a choice to do something that doesn't actually benefit you or your life that you're trying to construct for yourself in the end. This was what it looked like to follow Jesus. This was what it looked like to be God's people. Saying, I'm going to live in a sacrificial way. Not saying, I'm going to do that with my money, or living in a way, saying, I'm going to do that with my money, I'm going to do that with my relationships, I'm going to do that with my time. I'm going to sacrifice of myself. It's called the downward mobility of Jesus. I'm going to actually, in some ways, suffer. And in the end, I'm not doing it because it'll make things better for me. I'm doing it because I serve God. If we don't ever do that, if our faith never leads us to that place, 
The place where we say, not just I give a certain amount of money uh, because that's the amount of money that you have to give because then I get to be a part of a group of people where we all agree that that's what we're going to do. And I like being a part of that group of people and I like that community and that's the rules and that's what we agree to, which is ultimately self-serving. But to say, there are going to be times that I'm going to be called to give sacrificially of myself. If we don't ever find our faith leading us to do that, then perhaps we think we're serving God, but we're serving ourselves. And he is just a means to the end of doing that. Or this group of people, or the gathering together is a way of doing that. Many of us think we're serving God, but we're just trying to give a good impression to everyone around us. We are slaves to what people think of us. I think, I think, I think this is so true of so many that struggle with being so concerned with how we appear, with being correctly perceived and understood and known. And what's the tell for that? Well, simple. When you know that someone is misunderstanding or misperceiving or something is miscommunicated with a person and that drives you crazy and you can't let it go. Now, now those words, all those miswords, those don't mean that something actually happened that was wrong. It means that things don't look the way they should. People don't have the whole story. People don't totally see things as clearly as they could. Because if only they did, if only they could, then they would know that I'm fine, that I'm okay. I, 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 had, a, I had a situation with somebody a couple of weeks ago. They don't, they're not part of our church, don't worry. And we found ourselves ultimately at like an impasse. And I kept thinking to myself for days and weeks about it, leading up to after it, everything, just thinking like, there's got to be some kind of a way that like this doesn't have to involve some kind of wreckage, some kind of pain, some kind of damage to the relationship that we have. And yet that didn't seem to be the case. And so I would, I would worry about it and stress about it and think about it and go, okay, did I do something wrong? Am I doing something wrong? Have I done something wrong? Or, and this is the one I was always really hoping for, did they do something wrong, right? Have I been wronged? And that's why things are the way they are, and they just don't see it. And I get to go, okay, well, it's their fault, right? And as I thought about this, and as I even prayed about it, and I, and I, and I want to say the Christian part of me is like, I want to know that like I'm doing the right thing. There's also the part of me that just cares so much. In the end, in the relationship with the person, how they understand and see me as a person. And as I thought about this again and again, I realized I'm not thinking about God right now. I'm not afraid of God. I'm not worried about God or what he thinks. This is all about people. And so often we do that because we're slaves to it. We, we live our entire lives allowing them to be dictated by what other people think of us and how well others see us and just wanting others to understand us maybe and get us. And thinking that if they did, then we would be fine to be known, to be understood, to be loved, to be right, all of those things. You have a friendship fall apart. Your children don't appreciate you. You kill yourself at work and no one cares. Or worse, they say your work doesn't matter. And these things destroy you. Why? Because you're a slave to these things. Many of us think we're serving God, but we're actually just trying to impose our desire of how the world ought to be on everybody else. We think we're serving God, we think we're slaves to God, but really we're just mad that the world is indifferent. Here's the tell for that one, it's easy. 
when you think something's wrong, do you apply it to your own life or do you immediately go, no, 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 I've got this. And then you just start focusing on how everyone else needs to live this way. Everyone else needs to do this thing. If people would just get it, why don't people get it? Why don't people do it? Why don't people see the way things ought to be? And it bothers us and it drives us crazy. Why? Because oftentimes we say, no, I think I'm serving God. But really the thing is, we just want to be right. And we can't deal with the fact that everybody else is wrong. All of the things, the good things in life that we can experience and have be a part of our lives, people, money, fun, comfort, work, food, drink, family, all of these things can be things that we are slaves to if we allow ourselves to be slaves to them. If we say, I'm going to serve this thing, and the problem is when you allow something to become something that you're a slave to, then you are not able to truly enjoy that thing. You're not able to be free to actually experience that thing the way that you're intended to. You need it. You need it so bad because without it, you'll perish. And because you need it so bad, you can't really enjoy it. I mean, how many friendships have been ruined because of how much people needed each other? Does that sound weird? But it's true. How much insecurity comes from needing to be affirmed and understood and cared about by people? How much comes from needing the money and the stuff that we are a slave to it, the comfort that we're a slave to it? Wisdom is recognizing that slavery is saying, serve this thing or die. And there is only one thing that we ought to say that about, and it is God. Without him, we will die. And the way it works with God is we serve him. That's why what we see with the Israelites is not bad. That's why with all the the stipulations and the consecration, with the terror and the fear and the scale and the scope of all of it, and with what it's going to call them to do that's hard for them, that involves sacrifice. Even with all of that, it's life. And part of why it's life is because anything else is slavery to something else that will lead to death and that will kill. If we see it that way, then we can be grateful. Grateful that we have a mediator. Grateful that we can gather. And we are still called to gather. We're still called to do exactly what they did. Why? Because God hasn't changed And because people haven't changed. And so this hasn't changed. And we're called throughout Scripture, especially in the New Testament even, to not give up coming together, consecrating ourselves as we do, seeking Jesus, the only one that will really give us life, and being known as a group of people that above all else point to Jesus. Not the point to consecration, not the point to purity, not the point to attendance, or participation in a group. Because those things don't bring life. The thing that brings life is why we do all those things, which is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are profoundly grateful for who you are. That you are a God who is so, so good that even though serving you and following you can often be so difficult, Lord, The beauty of it, the beauty of you, draws us in. 
Father, our prayer is first and foremost that we would recognize that in you is life and in everything else is slavery to something. God, in a world where we are um, completely surrounded by and consumed with the need to both be free and to define ourselves by our ability to be who we're meant to be, Lord, you make it very clear that just as you created your people, the Israelites, to be priests and that to do anything else was outside of who they are in you, who they were created and intended to be, that, Father, the same is true for us, that you have created us and you have intended for us to be your people and that if we live any other way, that we aren't living out who we really are, that we're imposters, that we're seeking after something that will only bring death, Lord. Our prayer is that as we worship you, as we sing to you, as we reflect on you, God, that we would truly see the beauty and the life that is in you and that that would be evident, God, in our lives. That's in your name we pray, amen. Father, as we sing that about how good you have been to us, God, in every season of life, in every group of people that you've worked through, Father, we recognize that to come together in your presence is such an incredible privilege. And we just reflect on these words in Hebrews. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given, if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enthroned in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. God, this is why we gather. This is who we gather in the presence of. Our prayer is that we would treat it with a great level of reverence, Lord and that in, it, in us it would produce joy. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.